we're continuing our study of Romans, and we're entering a really interesting section in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, We're going to approach this section a little bit differently in that today I'm going to give you an overview of all three chapters, and then we're going to go back and take each chapter one at a time. Uh, These chapters in Romans really deal with how we understand and how we frame who God is and what he's up to in the world. It's it's a major theological section, Um, but it's not an easy section. Um, I've got an article that I've looked at a number of times that's uh, by the Gospel Coalition. They interviewed five different scholars who've written big commentaries um, on the book of Romans. I have most of those commentaries. Um, And as they interview them, one of the questions they ask is, what's the most difficult passage you came across in Romans? And and, um, most of them mention at one level or another Romans 9 through 11. It it is a, a difficult passage to work through because it really does wrestle with who God is and how we frame him. And we people have always struggled with that. Um, Chuck Swindoll said this, In ancient days, we replaced God with things we dug out of the ground and whittled down to one grotesque shape or another. Now we prefer idols of a more theoretical kind, like something from nothing scientific myths and vain philosophies that celebrate the unlimited potential of human evolution. No matter, they are, like their predecessors, substitute gods inspiring false hope. What I want to set up here at the very beginning is what we understand about God in Romans 9 through 11 may tear down some of your um, thoughts about God. It may tear some of them down and say, wow, I, I need to really grapple with some of these realities. And, and some of them will put you in tension, um, one of the tensions, and there will be many, one of the tensions is God is not like us. And I know we all would, on a true-false theology quiz, is God like us? We'd say, no, we're like him. Um, but one of my theology professors who's with the Lord now, he, he said this in one of our classes. He said, in the beginning, God made man in his image. Now hey, we have returned the favor, and modern theology has made God in man's image. Um, we, we tend to be uncomfortable with God if he's doing things not like we would do them. And, and in Romans 9 through 11, you're going to see that God doesn't do things the way we necessarily would, but he has a sovereign, wise, loving, gracious plan that he's working out through all of that. Um, and, and so I, at the beginning of this 9 through 11, it's going to say, what is God like? What's he up to? What's he doing? And how is he running the world? Um, and he's doing it in a way that's not like us. I want to start by telling you, um, we need to end up here with a worshipful theology. A theology that says, God has inscrutable character. There's some things about who God is that we will never figure out completely. I can talk about the truth of the Trinity, and I can say that God is three in one, and I believe the scriptures completely and thoroughly portray that. But yet explaining the details of the Trinity, that's inscrutable. I'm never going to be able to get all the details laid out in a way that everybody just goes, well, that totally makes sense. I mean, one of the realities about the Trinity is there's no good illustration for it because God is different than anything else. There are some illustrations that approach similarity, but, but God, he has an inscrutable character, even at the very 
essence of who he is as a Trinitarian God. And he also has inscrutable ways. He's doing things that are not like we would do them. He's doing things in ways that, that it's not until we see it happening in the past and we can, can have that perspective on it that we go, oh, now I see what he was up to. And so we worship a God who is so much bigger than us that we can understand him adequately but never thoroughly. We can understand his ways adequately but never fully. Because he is God and we are not. And scripture says this a number of times. Just one of the places in Isaiah uh, that that he says this, um, God speaking says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's, his character and his ways, we will never fully put together in a way that makes us just go, that, that is, per, makes perfect sense. Um, until I think we see them all f- unfolded and we see him for who he really is, as First John tells us, when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. When we see and get a clear picture of, oh, that's who God is, then everything he does will make sense in its sovereign, loving, wise unfolding as it has happened. So with that said, what we're going to do in Romans 9 through 11 is we're going to tell you what the passages say. And at one level, here's what it says. God is sovereign over everything, and man is responsible for his own choices. And those things often don't feel like they go together. But they are clearly presented in this passage. Romans chapter 9 is full of the sovereignty of God. Romans chapter 10 is full of the responsibility of man. Um, and, And so I agree with Chuck Swindoll who says this, like the enigma of God's nature in the Trinity. I accept God's sovereign plan as scripture has revealed it and then faithfully teach it as the Holy Spirit enables me. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you an overview of 9 through 11. Then we're going to go back and we're going to teach 9, teach 10, teach 11. (laughs) And it's that complete package that is going to allow us to say, okay, that's what we understand about God And, and at one level we have to embrace it as a God who is so much bigger than us that we um, have no choice but to worship him. So Romans 9 through 11 is talking to us about God and what he's like. And if nothing else, I hope this introduction has made you go, I need to read Romans 9 through 11. I had no idea (laughs) all that was in there. Um, It really is. The frame for Romans 9 through 11 that I put on is God is on trial here. Um, the, The issue is, What is God like, and is he faithful? Can he be trusted? Um, N.T. Wright says this. this, When I saw this, I thought, this this pulls it all together. (laughs) Romans 9 through 11 is as full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. Many have given it up as a bad job, leaving Romans as a book with eight chapters of the gospel at the beginning, four chapters of application at the end, and three of puzzle in the middle. And let me tell you, that's, that, that is an easy way to approach Romans. <laughs> Romans 1 through 8 is clearly presenting the gospel. The first three chapters are need for the good news that Jesus provides because we're sinners, 1 through 3. 
the provision that Jesus makes, the end of chapter 3, chapters 4 and 5, that we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, validated by his resurrection. And all of the benefits that that brings to us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, being able to leave, live um, above the sinful nature, um, as we count ourselves um, dead to sin, and don't do that in the power of the flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings with it all of these great promises that God gives us of peace and union with Christ and identification with him and hope in the future. Um, All of that is presented in 1 through 8. We're sinners, we need Jesus, and that brings us all kinds of benefits. Once you get to chapter 12, that's the part that everybody's much more familiar with. Um, where Paul is going to say, listen, I'm challenging you and encouraging you based on all that God has done for you to submit yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And then he gets really practical with some applications in four chapters at the end. These chapters in the middle can often feel like, ah, what do I do with them? They're a puzzle. Or the reactions sometimes are, um, they're really unnecessary. Um, there's been an interesting reaction in, in recent years to say they are the central part of what's going on in the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to present what's there. Um, and I want to give you some resources to help you through that. Number one uh, is a challenge by Doug Moo for, for everyone, but particularly parents, and I would say grandparents as well, Um, For you to be familiar with the story of the Bible, because that's what Romans 9 through 11 is going to do. Romans 9 through 11 is going to give you the storyline of the Bible. And it's only if you know that storyline that you're going to be able to go, okay, this all makes sense. If you don't know the storyline of the Bible, it's going to be very difficult to pull all this together. It's one of the reasons that every now and then we've done equipping classes. Um, we we've did one just a few years ago. Um, there was an all-day class on an overview of the Bible, and we're going to do that again because seeing the big picture really helps you understand the, the details of what some of the smaller things mean. Um, in response to this conflict in Romans 9 through 11 that, that can lead to an overemphasis on God's sovereignty or an overemphasis on man's responsibility in a way that eliminates one or the other. Um, Chuck Swindoll has a really balanced article called Going to Extremes, and I would encourage you to take advantage of it. There's copies at the Connection Center and online. And then uh, an article by Frank Thielman that is a fantastic review of what we've already covered in Romans 1 through 8 and preview of what we're going to cover in Romans 9 through 11. So there's some great resources out there that I really encourage you to take advantage of. Now, let's, let's jump right into the problems and the solutions that we're going to find in Romans 9 through 11. Um, Scott Duvall says this. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul is addressing two important matters. The unbelief of Israel and how this unbelief affects God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Israel's unbelief seems to call into question God's ability to keep his promises, an important aspect of his righteousness. Paul addresses these matters by retelling Israel's story in order to show God has actually been faithful all along. Um, I'm going to make this point again and again because it's really important for us to get the overview of what's going on in in 9 through 11. God's made these great promises in the gospel in chapters 1 through 8 that culminate in our glorification. (laughs) But then the question becomes, 
Yeah, but what about God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews, who didn't accept Christ, and they're not getting all these benefits, and they were his people. He called them, he elected them, he, he, he created them into a nation, and they were his people. Um, but now they haven't, um, they haven't followed him. Well, is God going to be faithful to them? It, it sure seems like there's a, a problem in all of this. And so how uh, Paul is going to address that is he's going to uh, deal with God's past relationship to Israel and say, here's how God is related to Israel and it's been consistent. Then he's going to deal with God's present relationship to Israel. And then he's going to deal with God's future relationship to Israel. Um, each one of those, he's going to take a chapter. It may divide a little bit differently between chapters 9 and 10, but it's easiest to just think of it this way. God's past relationship to Israel. And this is where you need to know the Old Testament story is to understand how God worked with Israel. Um, who are some of these characters that he's going to talk about? You need to know who Abraham is, who, who Jacob is, who Esau is, and how they fit into the, the storyline. God's present relationship with Israel, that's where you need to really know the New Testament and what goes on in the New Testament. And God's future relationship with Israel, um, which is one of the, if you're an eschatology person, you, you're this things to come, you know the future, Boy, chapter 11 is really critical for understanding all of that. Um, let me get back to the, the problem here. Doug Moose says this. Can God be trusted to do what he says? Remember, in chapters 1 through 8, he said he's going to do a lot. Save us, sanctify us, glorify us, free us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin. Can God be trusted to do what he says? This is the ultimate question Paul seeks to answer in chapters 9 through 11. God's dealing with Israel raised the question, but its implications go much further. If God indeed promised he would bless Israel and then turned around and blessed the church instead, he might do the same thing again. He promises, uh, his promises to the church might in turn be fulfilled, for instance, in a completely different entity. His promises to me personally as a believer might not be reliable either. Here's one way you can look at the, the biblical story with Israel. God chose Israel. They blew it, so he said, now I'm going to bless the church. Well, <laughs> what if we blow it? And frankly, we are. Is he going to create some new entity? Can you trust God to do what he said? I mean, everybody at this moment probably just went, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, now I see it. Um, Tom Schreiner puts it this way. We have seen that the end-time blessings promised to the Jews belong to Gentile believers, who indeed are God's children, inheritors of the promises, God's elect people, righteous in His sight, and assured of glorification. All of this raises the question of the promises made in the Old Testament to ethnic Israel, Jewish people who were born Jewish. He goes on to say, And the promises have been rerouted to the church. And if God's promises to Israel have not been fulfilled, how can one be sure that the promises made to the church will be fulfilled? The primary question raised in Romans 9 through 11 then, is, God faithful, is God's faithfulness to his promises made to Israel? And, and derivatively, <laughs> if he's not faithful to do all the stuff he said he'd do in the Old Testament for Israel, is he going to do it for us? That's why you have to go, what did he really do? God's past relationship with Israel. What did he do with them? What did he promise them? 
God's present relationship with Israel, how are they relating to him now? And is there a future for ethnic Israel? Is he going to fulfill all those promises somehow in the future because they're not being fulfilled now? Again, think of Romans 9 through 11 as as three chapters. The first chapter is really going to emphasize the sovereignty of God. God's in control. One of the famous verses there. God will have compassion on who he wants to have compassion and mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. God can do whatever he wants. Now, there's some other troubling, troubling verses in Romans 9 that I'm going to detail next week. But the emphasis of Romans 9 is the sovereignty of God. God's in control of this. He chose people, and he didn't choose people. And he can use them in any way he wants. I'm getting too far afield. Um, he's, he's the potter, and he can make whatever he wants out of the lumps of clay. He is sovereign. Romans chapter 10 deals with the justice of God. They rejected him, so he rejected them. God's, God's just in doing this. Romans chapter 11, but he's going to be faithful to those original promises. How he does that is part of his wise gracious, loving, sovereign plan. So each one of these chapters has a, has a major emphasis. Um, another way you can look at it is, is you can see Israel's fall in chapter 9, is, Israel's major failure to receive Christ in chapter 10, but their future in chapter 11. Um, here's another way to, to think this through. The sovereignty of God is chapter 9. The responsibility of man is chapter 10. It's chapter 10 that says... Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how can they be saved unless they hear the message? So we better go tell them the message. The responsibility of man is so clearly presented there. And it opens up the invitation to everyone. And it gives us the responsibility, since everyone can hear and receive the message, let's go tell as many people as we can. Let's get that message across the room to every member of your family across the street to the people you come in contact with, and around the world through, through mission work, uh, through supporting missionaries that you should be supporting, through involving yourself in, in a lot of different ways uh, that you can be involved in missions. And let me just take a moment to plug uh, the perspectives class that will come up in the fall again. It's a great way for you to see different ways that you can get your fingerprints on, on missions. And we give you an easy way to do that with Operation Christmas Child. You can get your fingerprints on the gospel going around the world that way. There's so many other ways you can be involved. And then finally, the, the future of Israel is really this, I think, the culminating argument that says God is faithful because there is a future for Israel. But this passage puts God on trial. And it's going to have some accusations that are, are clear, some accusations that are kind of embedded. And then there's going to be some evidence. And the evidence is really God is faithful. Look at his past relationship, his present relationship, and his future relationship to Israel. He can be trusted. All of these great promises he's made to us, particularly in chapters 4 through 8, that we can be justified and have peace and have hope, and have union and identification with Christ. All of those great promises, you can trust him because when you see the big picture, it says he is trustworthy. 
So the charges, if I were to summarize them, is this. God can't be trusted. He's unfaithful. He made giant promises to Israel in the Old Testament. He said they were going to have a land, and he said they were going to have it forever. Well, I mean, you know right now that Israel is fighting for their land, and there are certain pieces of the land that that they don't have now. And and I'm not just talking about um, the the current borders of Israel. I'm talking about the area that the Old Testament promises to the children of Israel, which moves up through Syria into um, Iran and, and goes all the way down to the border and even partway into Egypt from the Euphrates to what is Wadi El Arish. It's a much huger portion than the state of Israel is now. God said they would have that forever. Um, God said that they would have a king who would reign forever. What about those promises? <laughs> um, what are you going to do with that? Can, can God be trusted because he made all these promises? He's, he's not been faithful to his people. And oh my gosh, he just changed his mind in the middle of everything and just said, oh, I'm going to work with the church. Israel, I'm so frustrated with you. I'm, I'm done with you. Now I'm going to work with the church. This is scary if you're the church because you're just like, what if he did that with us? And if you're really honest, you'll go, he should do that with us. So let's, let's look at the, char- the charges that are made. I want you to see them in the, in the text of Scripture. After Paul introduces his, his heart and his, his, his desire for Israel to come into faith in Jesus Christ, and he does that at the beginning of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, he says this, It is not as though God's word had failed, because that was the charge. God's word has failed. He said he's going to do something, and it didn't happen. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. This is a quote from the Old Testament. In other words, and here's his his answer, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. God made these promises to Abraham, and God said, um, your children are going to be blessed. But not all of his children were blessed, because Abraham had two children. <laughs> he, he had Ishmael, and he had Isaac. But it was through Isaac that the spiritual blessings came. So physical descendancy is not the determiner. And he goes back, and he says, you, look at the story in the Old Testament. The spiritual blessings came through one seed, not the other. He's going to take that even further and say, Isaac had two kids too, Jacob and Esau. And I mean, just to get you back here next week, in chapter 9 is, is the passage that, where God says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. God, just being a, a descendant of Abraham doesn't make you a recipient of the blessings. Because you've got Ishmael, you've got Esau, who were not the recipients of the blessings. So there's something more than just being a physical descendant of Abraham that is at play here. So God's word hasn't failed, 
even in the Old Testament, what he said is, I'm going to bless the descendants of Abraham, but only those who are part of the spiritual line. There's another charge that's made in chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? <laughs> is God unjust? It seems like God is, is not doing, and, and here's where it gets into, God's not doing what I would do. He says, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God's not unjust. (laughs) He's just merciful and gracious and compassionate. If he were unjust, then what he would do is just willy-nilly make decisions. If he were completely just, what he would do is he would say, everybody goes to hell. That's not what he does. He has compassion on some and mercy on some. So God's not unjust. He may not do things like we do it because here's how we would do it. We would do it, as this passage would say, based on human desire or effort. If you're really trying hard to please God, okay, you get in. And again, this may be one of the places you've got to adjust your theology. God does not relate to us on the basis of our effort and our performance, neither for our salvation or our sanctification. It is all empowered by the Holy Spirit and His grace. And as we respond in love to that grace, and we respond to receive the benefits that come through what's already been done for us by the death of Christ and the provision of the Holy Spirit. The death of Christ providing for our salvation, the provisions of the Holy Spirit providing for our sanctification. Now, I mean, you just think about it. That's not how we would do it. We would do it by saying, if you're trying hard, you're in. That's not how God does it. God says, if you stop trying and receive my son's beneficial death for you, if you receive that by faith, now you're in. God's compassionate and merciful on the ones he chose to be compassionate and merciful to. Okay, the the charges keep going. (laughs) God is wrong to hold us accountable in light of his sovereignty. Well, if God's got it all figured out, then why am I responsible? And and by the way, if you're not going, well, wait a minute. Yeah, that seems right. If God is responsible, he's got it all figured out, then why am I culpable for doing what's going to have to happen anyways? One of you may well say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Um, well, God's holding me responsible for my choices, but he, this part of his sovereign plan anyway, so am I really responsible? Romans chapter 10 is going to say, yes, you are responsible. But it raises the question, is this passage getting more complex for you now? We can't look back to God. At one level, there's going to have to be a place, if you're studying honestly through Romans 9 through 11, where you just submit. And you just sit back and you just go, Okay, I'm the lump, and he's the potter. 
And he can do with me what he wants. And he can do with everyone because he created us. And, and it all eventually brings glory to God. But in his wise, gracious, compassionate, um, merciful, sovereign, just plan, he's got it all figured out. And I have to just back up and submit to that. Submission is going to be the final response, not full understanding. And trust me, I'm all about understanding. (laughs) But at the end of this, you just have to go, he's God and I am not. And he's God and he doesn't do things the way I would do them. And I'm not always comfortable with that, but he is still God. And by the way, one of the other conclusions is, and I'm so glad he is God because he's more gracious and compassionate than I would be. Um, this gets to the stuff in chapter 11. God's rejected his people. <laughs> and, and here's the trouble. If God rejected Israel and started working with the church, maybe he's going to reject the church. Um, I, I again ask, did God reject his people? Paul's answer, by no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Here's here's the first answer to this in chapter 11. There's always a remnant. God didn't reject them. There's always been some people in Israel who are believers. Even now, in what we would call the church age, Paul is going, I'm Jewish and I'm a believer. So, so, So the rejection has not been total because there's always been a remnant. So, so God, God has not rejected his people totally. The door's always been open. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, and that is what Paul goes to extremes to say in the book of Romans. You're united in this gospel thing. All Jews, all Gentiles come to God the same way through Jesus Christ and his provision. So Paul's first answer, has God rejected his people? No, look at me, I'm Jewish. <laughs> I'm in. There's a lot of other Jews that are in. There are a lot of Jewish Christians. And um, from some of the things I hear, um, and I know this sounds cloaked in mystery, um, but there's a huge revival of Jewish people taking place right now, and they don't want all of us to know about it because we screw it up for them. <laughs> they just want to keep sharing Christ with all of their Jewish friends. Um, there's a huge revival going on. Pray for it. Um, There's a second version of this question in chapter 11. Again, I say, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Has God's plan been thwarted? I mean, he chose them, and did they mess up so bad that, that he's finished with them completely? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But their transgressions means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater will their full inclusion bring? When we get to chapter 11, what you're going to see is God does have a future plan for Israel. He he does have a future plan for ethnic Israel. And there's a really (laughs) strange sentence you're going to get to at the end of chapter 11. All Israel will be saved. Four weeks, be back. Um, his first answer is this, 
Is, is God's rejection complete? No, because there's a remnant. Is God's rejection final? No, because there's a future. All of these questions get raised to just basically say this. God can't be trusted. He's not been faithful. Yes, you can trust him because he is sovereign and he is faithful. And particularly when you get to chapter 11, he does have a future for all of the people he chose. He is going to fulfill all of those promises in the future. Now to the answers. Frank Thielman says this in Romans 9, 1 through eleven thirty six, Paul acknowledges the tragedy of Israel's rejection of the gospel. He does that in 9.1 and in 10.1 as well, both places where he just goes, they've rejected and I wish they would be saved. But he acknowledges they've rejected the gospel. But then explains why this response does not pose a threat to the claims he has made about the consistency of the gospel with Israel's scripture. He's going to say, yeah, they have rejected, but God is still faithful. And the evidence summarized is this, God is sovereign, just, and faithful. That's, that's what we're going to see. God is sovereign, chapter 9. God is just, chapter 10. God is faithful, chapter 11. Um, Al Ross, Old Testament scholar who uh, likes the New Testament because it reminds him of the Old Testament. He says this, So this section is an attempt to explain God's dealings with Jews as a vindication of righteousness. Paul does it by a clear exposition of the Scriptures. He will show that Israel's rejection is related to the spiritual pride of the Jews, that Israel's rejection is not, beclee, not complete because some are being saved, and that Israel's rejection is not final because it will be reversed before the coming of the Lord, which he gets to at the end of chapter 11. So briefly, let me just preview the evidence and how we're going to see this. In chapter 9, we're going to see God's pre- past relationship with Israel. And the emphasis there is God is sovereign, And God did choose Israel. He he specifically chose Israel, and he even chose a line within Israel. Um, And and a Jewish person is not justified just because they're Jewish. Again, I I think you probably all know this. All Jews aren't going to heaven. (laughs) Um, To get to heaven, you have to put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ validated by his resurrection. Um, You're not God's people just because you're Jewish. Um, You're God's people because you have faith in in who God is. Spiritual faith makes you a child of God, not the birth um, that comes from two Jewish parents or even one Jewish parent. God is sovereign, and he will accomplish his purpose. I don't know if you've noticed at the beginning there. God is sovereign at the beginning. God is sovereign at the end. Chapter 9 is the God is sovereign chapter. If you like the sovereignty of God and that's your place, just keep reading chapter 9, okay? Although there is chapter 10. God's present relationship with Israel. This is the the human responsibility part. You're involved in this process. Israel did reject God. And Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. But they have rejected that. And and man is responsible to accept Christ by faith. This is where he, again, says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, and you believe in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you're going to be saved. 
You have to make that choice. And there's a responsibility that we have to proclaim that message around the world. If you like the responsibility, hey, we've got to make the choice. We better get the message done. Chapter 10 is your chapter. Keep reading it. Every now and then go read chapter 9. But keep reading chapter 10. And, and, and if, you, if, if you love the sovereignty of God, read chapter 9. Every now and then read chapter 10. Um, not all Israelites ever believed God's message. Even in the Old Testament, he's going to go back and he's going to say, even in the Old Testament, there were a lot of those guys back there in the Old Testament, the Jews, who didn't, they were not believers. They were Jewish, but they were not, they were not believers. Chapter 11, he's going to say, um, remember, Israel's rejection is not total. Some Jews are now being saved. And Israel's rejection is not final. God has a future. God's plan always includes a remnant. God's plan always includes a future for Israel. And God's purposes and plans are irrevocable. So whatever he said he was going to do, he is going to do. And Paul clearly presents that which draws you to the conclusion, you can trust him. All of this stuff that happened in 1 through 8, you can trust him. Because people are condemned because of their sin, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. And he goes out of his way to say, here's the condemnation of the Jews, here's the condemnation of the Gentiles, and here's the condemnation of anybody, no matter who you are. You're all condemned because of your sin. But Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures and the Jewish scriptures, and he's Jewish, He's the one who provides salvation for the Jew and the Gentile alike. And that ushers you into this new identity and a new communion as the people of God in, in the church that is, that is headed by Jesus Christ. And yes, that's primarily Gentile now, but God still is going to fulfill all of his promises to the Jews in the future. So Romans 9-11 through says this, God is sovereign, Israel's responsible, Israel's rejection is not complete, and Israel's rejection is not final. Um, that, that's what he's going to tell us. So, how do you respond to that? Where does he want us to land? Three weeks from now, where should we land? I, I'm going to tell you where we need to land. We need to land exactly where he lands, and, and that is with the benediction that he ends chapter 11 with. Here's what it is. It's the conclusion of the message. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. You're never going to fully understand it. But trust me, it's wise and it's right. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. If you come out of Romans 9 through 11, you go, oh, I get it. You've missed something because his ways are unfathomable. Um, by the way, the next two verses say this. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's really the ultimate conclusion. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's where we need to land. 
So a couple of next steps. What, what do you do with a message like this? What do you do with this theologically um, intense um, passage of Scripture that many of you one hour ago were happy you didn't know about? But now that you know, okay, what do you do with it? I'm going to tell you this. Make a conscious choice to rest in the wisdom and faithfulness of God. Submit. Make a conscious choice to just, to just go, I trust him. He's wise. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's compassionate. And he's sovereign over all of it. I'm going to trust him. And secondly, be honest about your questions about God. Be honest and, and go, you know, some of these things are troubling. Be honest. It's okay. On the same note, be faithful with Scripture and let Scripture speak for itself. Avoid the, the stress of, and the temptation to make God like you. Hard questions are fine. Work hard to find reliable answers. And then finally, I would say, read your Bible well. Read your Bible well so that when the Bible gets to passages like this, you go, okay, I get it. I see that. And don't just read chapter 9 or chapter 10. Read chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11 and the Old Testament. And go to a church where people preach through Leviticus every now and then. (laughs) And then come back here next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your character. We thank you for your consistency. Father, I thank you for your wisdom and your grace. And Lord, I submit to your sovereignty, to your greatness. And Father, in your great grace, you decided to solve all of our problems through the death of your son who shed his blood for us. And that's never a solution we would have come up with. And we're grateful for it. (laughs) But Father, your blood, the blood of your Son, it covers our sin. covers the sin of everyone who will come to him. And we thank you for that. We thank you with our hearts. We thank you with our words as we sing this song. Amen.